Hey, this is Keisha Thompson from Contact. I'm in the Mill office. Welcome to the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Is that right? Yeah, you got to write half of that. <laughs> <laughs> so the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. From the Mill. Okay, yeah, but then don't talk after. One more time. Hey, this is Keisha Thompson from Contact. I'm in the Mill office, and welcome to the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello there, and welcome indeed to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from The Mill with me, Daryl Morris, with Yoshi Herman, the editor of The Mill as well. Hello, Yoshi. What's up? And um, shout out to Keisha. Shout out to Keisha for doing the little intro, and we're going to hear more from her in a minute. A very interesting woman. I saw her um, appointment recently, and the, the artistic director of Contact Theatre, a fascinating woman, isn't she? I think plenty to say for herself. Yeah, she's really interesting. She's got loads of ideas for how to run the theatre, and we did a, like a, a proper in-depth interview in the office this week and we're just going to run a little section of it on, on the podcast today so people can hear from her and then they can read Sophie's piece with her um, very soon. Love it, excellent. Okay, we've got lots and lots to get into as ever this week. Uh, there is a big conference happening in Manchester today as we record this on a Wednesday. Mm. Uh, the Convention of the North, Michael Gove, Lisa Nandy, uh, a whole plethora of mayors from around the place talking about levelling up, etc. We'll get into all the detail on that in a minute. Firstly, Yoshi, it's been a big week in the Mills universe, my friend. It's been a huge week. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed waking up on Monday morning to hearing hearing your voice yeah. on the Today programme on BBC Radio 4. Yeah, it's a bit of a cliche to say I woke up to something, but I literally set my radio alarm every morning. This is my new morning routine, new New year routine. Yeah. 7.15. Right. So I set it. Obviously, the first couple of minutes, you're not really awake. It's yeah. waking you up, waking you up, waking up. And then the next item yeah. I heard, sort of when I was awake... Was Amal Rajan saying there's this new startup in Manchester? You know they're they're profitable. Did you know that was coming? I knew obviously it, you knew it was going to happen. So but it, you knew it was going to happen. It was going to be on Saturday, and then it got pushed to Monday. But I didn't know when. It was just right. it was just weird that it was the first item, full yeah. item that I heard. So I listened to that. I was obviously like buzzing about it. But what I didn't realise is the response you'd get because I've you know we've done radio for I think a couple of different shows on radio for mm-hmm. World at One and 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 and. and, and and, and um, what was the other one I went on? You and yours. You and yours. But this one, I think, because it's the their flagship news show, I just suddenly like went on Twitter and it's like loads and loads of tweets. Rory Kath and Jones, yeah, who yeah. reads the mill, I th- um, he he tweeted about it, and lots of other people did. And suddenly we got loads of new members. I think two hundred people joined our email list like that day. Yeah, something like that. Twenty new members, maybe twenty five, maybe thirty. So yeah, amazing boost that was. Fantastic. Yeah. Really good. It was very exciting. And so can you can listen back to that, right? So if you go to BBC Sounds and stuff, Monday. Go to BBC Sounds, go to the to the Today programme and go on um seven I seven twenty minutes past seven or something. Very on, cool on Monday. Very, very cool. Um and as well, I mean, that's only half the story of uh, an incredible week. There's been a, a report in uh, from the House of Commons about local journalism, Yoshi, that has specifically mentioned the mill. Yeah, so this is the select committee of the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. Yes. And we knew that they were doing this inquiry into the health of local news last year because um, they did a kind of call out for submissions. And I, as I would, wrote a seven page submission (laughs) of evidence. That's the most Yoshi thing I've ever heard. I know. know. (laughs) And um, I thought the only people who'd read it would be sort of my, you know, work group chat who I sort of sent it to. Um, And they didn't call me in to like give evidence or whatever, which is fair enough. I'm an absolute nobody. But I think they might have actually read it because it's interesting how. The tone of their report reflected this growing criticism that I think we're in part of, or at least you know, you know, we're contributing to, about how the big companies that run local news are sort of doing it into the ground. It's really like striking how critical this report is of these big publishers. They're saying quality is being driven down. They've got concerns about sort of 
clickbaity type things and, and, and page view pressures um, and closing offices and not having people who live in the area and that kind of thing. Like it's it's um, it's striking how critical this report is. I actually just want to read like the headline of I mean, I'm sure some people will have um, already read this, but the headline on Press Gazette on the day that we're, we're recording this, is MPs call for public interest local news fund and accuse major publishers of compromising quality. And, and so this big inquiry report is, is available to read online. The Press Gazette is, is reporting here what this committee said about a, a downward spiral of decline, readership falling, um, quality falling, that kind of thing. And obviously, you know, companies like Reach PLC have been reacted really, um, you know, they've reacted badly to this or mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're very disappointed in, in the finding and stuff but it's just extraordinary to see a big parliamentary committee made up of leading MPs senior MPs saying there is a massive problem in this industry because mm-hmm. in my submission I was like I think it's so strange that in America everyone realises there's a massive problem and in the UK people just don't really talk about it and now mm-hmm. I think maybe some people will start to talk about it so Really, really good news, and well done to the Public Interest News Foundation who've been lobbying for this this public news fund. It might, it may not happen, but at least it's now being recommended by a big committee. Very good. Okay, yeah. right. Enough talking about yourself. Okay, yes, yeah, um, uh, But we do have this is a, an exciting milestone on the podcast uh, because we have our first ever podcast sponsor. This is a sponsored podcast. And 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 by the way, I'm particularly because you know sometimes you know you hear podcasts mm. and and the hosts. You can just tell they're not that bothered about the, who the, the sponsor is. You can tell that they're just kind of going through the motions. These people, genuinely fascinating. When yeah. you told me about them, I was genuinely intrigued. Yeah. We'll be going along. And, and, and almost couldn't believe they existed and I didn't know. So did had you never heard... So we are talking about the Manchester Lit and Phil. They are sponsoring today's podcast. Had you literally never heard of them? I'd never heard of them. That was mental. Mm. And so many people have said that to me after the first... So they sponsored a few Monday briefings on yeah. the mail. And they, you know, I've had, I think, three or four conversations where people said, I can't believe I hadn't heard of the Lit and Phil. So they have big talks by big speakers. We're talking world leading academics, top scientists, government ministers, people who run think tanks about some of the big issues of the day. And it's really eclectic. Like sometimes it's about devolution and sometimes it's about like climate change and sometimes it's about like, you know, philosophy. They're really good on like philosophy and science and that kind of thing. So I knew about them. But I, I vaguely sort of knew about them. And it, it's interesting that a lot of our readers are saying, oh, I'd never heard of them, because this organisation's been going 250 years. Right, yeah. yeah. 250 years, <laughs> or almost 250 years. But that's almost it's a not quarter. A star- it's not a start-up, is it's it? It's not a start-up. So yeah. we've been going for two and a half years, yeah. times that by 100. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how long the yeah. Lit and Phil has been going. And, and their big thing is basically challenging people to think more deeply about, about the big issues, understanding the world around them. So in a sense, it sounds a lot like the mill. It's like... Very invested in ideas. Um, it's an organisation that wants people not just to think in their silos, but to expose themselves to new ideas. They do these amazing talks. Mm. They count um, Alan Turing as a former member, Ernest Rutherford as a former member. Oh. I think they used to have this sort of magnificent building. I don't know if you've ever been to Newcastle. The Lit and Phil there has an unreal sort of library. Right. I think the Manchester one, I, I hope I haven't got this wrong, I think they used to have one, but then I think it got bombed or, or burned down or something. Right, right. So they don't have a building now, but they, they, you know, they do their events in different buildings. I was um, just trying to think, like, how, what, what recently, what, how would it have got bombed so recently? But over 250 years, quite a few opportunities. Yeah, I think, it, I think it might have been a Second World War type really? scenario. Right. Mm. Um, but effectively, this is a really, really interesting organisation. And like the mill, it's membership, you know, good membership. And I've spoken to people who go along to these talks, and they're really, really good. I've only been to one, but I've spoken to people who've been to lots, and they're really, really good, apparently. So we have 
a special discount. Brilliant. For podcast listeners. Brilliant. And somehow it's even steeper than the discount that we were offering in the newsletter. Brilliant. Okay, 50% discount for both individual, for, for individual memberships, either for a month or for a year. So... If you want to get the monthly one, you need to go into the show notes, into you know, click wherever you're listening to this podcast. We're going to put a link there. Yeah. Um, the link ends in Mill Podcast Twenty Three, and you'll get fifty percent off your first month, so you'll save a fiver. But if you really want to get the savings, go for the annual, and that would normally be one hundred and eighteen pounds. And just for this discount, which is ending soon, they're doing it for fifty nine. Wow. So you go to the Mill, Mill Podcast Twenty Three. Um, you click on that link. So it's app.joinit, whatever, but I can't read out the whole link. It's too long. Mm-hmm. What you need to do is you need to go into the show notes. You need to click on the link, and um, and then you can get your discount. And, and they, they've told me, don't be put off by the whole your membership ends in September thing. It will be, it'll be a full year that you'll get, and you'll get it for the bargain price of 59 which means you can go to all of their talks. They have philosophical discussions. They're very, very active. Brilliant. They actually put me to shame because I was thinking, God, we need to do more events if these guys, yeah. these guys have such an amazing program. So we're going to do okay. some events together, I think. Excellent. Great, great, great. Okay. And I will see you there because I'm, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get knee deep in good. all of that. That sounds brilliant. Sounds exactly the so that's the Manchester Lit and Phil. Um, good to them. Thank you so much to those guys for, uh, for supporting us as well. Yeah. And uh, see you there. Okay, let's get into the main bulk of what we're going to talk about this week. Um, uh, down the road, roughly, from where we are right now, the Convention of the North is happening, Yoshi. A gathering of... Government ministers, shadow ministers, mayors, politicians, business leaders, people who are interested in these kind of things, I guess, to talk about levelling up the north, where we go from here. Big day, this really. Big conference, big moment. What a party that sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to miss that. <laughs> so who, who's there and, and what are they saying? I think, as you said, like all the sort of big wigs are there. They've, they've found time in their busy schedules to to, to hang out <laughs> together for yeah. a day, which I always find amazing. Um, but anyway, Burnham's giving a talk there and, and all the council leaders are there and, and, and yada, yada, yada. I am not that enthused sometimes by some of these things, but I think because sometimes I find that the speeches and the press releases are very, very safe and they really stick along the lines of stuff that you kind of could have predicted or whatever. So I'm not going to say that... Um, I'm not going to say that there's anything super exciting coming out of this, but I think that the thing that's interesting is that they, um, the northern leaders always try and use these events as like a kind of like peg, as we say in journalism, or like an opportunity to make a point. The point that they're trying to make, the thing that they're trying to lobby for, is hardwiring, as they call it, levelling up into the law. They want to get away from the system where different councils all bid for competitive contract, you know, competitions where you get 10 million here, 15 million here to do up your station or high street. They obviously want proper long-term financing for local areas and they can choose what they do with the money, right? So Andy Burnham said in a quote, Germany shows us what can be done when you hardwire legal guarantees to tackle inequalities and empower local leaders into the fabric of your country. East Germany has seen long-term support and investment since the fall of communism and it has worked. I saw a good tweet about this. It is an obvious tweet. It's still a good tweet from Andy Bounds who was like, question for Michael Gove. I mean, Michael Gove's also at this event. Given the presence of, of this um, minister from Germany who's also there, he says, will you commit the tens of billions Berlin did over 30 years? Which mm. I don't I don't think that's currently on there. <laughs> I haven't seen any evidence of that. No. So, so, so that's one thing. But I think this is the core point made by devolution advocates, right? We've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. That it can't be central money with people in Whitehall deciding how to dish it out. Mm-hmm. It has to be proper powers and proper money. And we've never had that in the UK. Proper devolution. We've, uh, I think proper devolution people describe what's happening in Greater Manchester as like an interesting experiment. But like you have to actually properly empower mayors 
um, and and other local leaders. Um, I, I, I remember this quote that Mike Emmerich said when, when he gave this interview to the mill. He said, I think Britain would be a much more robust democracy if there was some counterpoint in our body politic with different politi- um, powerful politicians around the country reflecting their areas with a direct mandate and powers of their own. That's what Burnham's really talking about here. But he's coming at it from the, from the position of, of funding. Mm. And I think... Don't you feel like they've kind of worked out how to talk about this now? Like, people don't care about devolution. Normal people don't care about devolution. Mm -hmm. Normal people don't care about constitutional settlements. But people do care about living standards. And really what they're saying is the only way to unleash proper growth and higher living standards in the economy is to reduce these regional gaps and and actually take advantage of the talent that's around the country. That seems like a cleverer sell to the electorate Mm. than we want to tweak where, you know, the constitutional settlement of how much power a mayor has or whatever, which Mm -hmm. people probably don't care about. So that's the way they, they put it now. And that seems to be um, that seems to be the way it's being sold. Which I don't know. Okay. Do you think that's clever? I think yeah. I've, I mean, have you seen anything this, this today that's kind of stood out that sort of stood out to you as being something un- unexpected on, on on that front? I mean, we heard from Michael Gove earlier. Look, I'm 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 not at the thing, and 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 I I was going to go, but I just there are several of these things a year, and I think you just you have to pick how you you spend your time. And I, I basically couldn't take a day out for it, but I think. From the tweets I've seen, the stories I've seen, and the press releases I've read through, I can't see anything that's like completely shifting my understanding of, of, of what's happening with this area. But it's kind of this moment that people release their reports and stuff. So I think you know, this is IPPR North report, which yeah. we should probably talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. IPPR North, big think tank. Mm-hmm. They, they've got a big thing out today. Um, I, th- I think they're saying that the north of England receives one of the lowest levels of investment among advanced economies, according to this, this new report. Greece would be the only OECD nation to see less public and, uh, and private investment if the region was a country, if the yeah. north was a country. Yeah. Um, so, so, so I think, yeah, you get interesting stuff like that. And, and, and I guess that, that sharpens the senses a little bit, doesn't it, in terms of, you know, how I, it, was, it was fascinating watching last week, watching the, the, um, the, the levelling up fund announcements and, 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 and seeing people across all parts of the country in the south as well celebrating their victories or, mm. or, or you know, chastising the government for not giving them the money that they wanted for, for various, for town hall re- renovations and all that sort of stuff. I think it really, ha- especially given the conversation that we had with Diane Coyle not that long ago, I think it really drove home to me the inadequacy of, of that levelling up fund project and what it's what it's not achieving as much as what it's achieving. Yeah, it just feels very small time, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it did. In it terms did, of yeah. the amount of money, but also in terms of this slightly am- amateurish way of doing it. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have you all bid. You're all gonna spend a million pounds a year bidding for stuff, and then we're gonna we're gonna dish it out. And some like 25 year old civil servant in Whitehall is gonna know whether Bolton should get the 15 million or mm. Stockport. It's just a bit. It's just a bit village, to be honest. Like. As a country, we should surely be able to do better than that. Yeah. This 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 report said um, the white paper, they're talking about the levelling up white paper, and subsequent policy developments fail to unlock the essential government resources required to level up. They say, when we look internationally, there is an assertive use of public sector investment to crowd in private sector investment to support levelling up. Mm. And obviously they're saying we're not seeing that here. So, yeah, it's... Um, we know we know how bad these things are. I haven't seen anything really new, but I suppose people banging on about it and explaining it in new ways and talking about it is a good thing. Okay. Um, speaking of cash and councils, cracking headline in the Mills member-only <laughs> edition. Yeah. Why is your cash-strapped local council buying your failing shopping centre? I was happy with that. That's a good question. <laughs> um, I was happy with that. So, Yoshi, why is your cash-strapped local council buying your local shopping centre? Yeah, so that was kind of what I was wondering, because we always get these emails from people saying, Hang on, my local council's just bought this thing. So you've had Stockport Council bought uh, Merseyway Shopping Centre, which is 
fairly miserable looking shopping mm. centre. They all are actually. You've got Wigan Council bought the galleries. You had Barry, I think, have bought the Longfield in Presswich, and and they followed that up with the Millgate in in Barry. And then Manchester's gone and bought the Withenshaw Civic Centre. I think that's I can't remember if that's actually a shopping centre, if it's a kind of shopping centre and civic centre or whatever, um, shopping precinct. And then Salford has bought Eccles Shopping Centre. Anyway, it's happening everywhere. That's my I'm local sh- shopping centre, uh, Eccles Shopping Centre. Oh, is center. it? It is. Any good? Yeah. Um, I, would, I can't profess to have spent enough time in it to give yeah. you an honest assessment. The Greggs was good yeah, yeah. when I popped for a Greggs. It's, one of the, it's the kind of place you pop for a Greggs. Yeah, it's not a ringing endorsement. Is it? No. So I think that... Um, and then obviously you've got Spindles in Oldham. So I basically thought, OK, what's the best way to cover this? I'm going to ask a council leader or a former council leader to justify why they're buying them, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So I got Sean Fielding, who used to be the Oldham um, council leader. He wrote this piece. Why did he buy Spindles? And then why are his colleagues or ex-colleagues around the the city region buying shopping centres. And a really interesting piece. I've We've already had some comments on these being like fascinating insight into local government. Go on stuff, then. So. Why are they buying them? Yeah. Yeah. I think the point he made was the private sector's vacating, right? Like it used to be that the market looked after itself in town centres. Like the big shops wanted to be there. You didn't need to get involved. But now that everything's gone um, online retail, his point, the piece makes the point that in 2006, it was like 3% of people or something bought online. Oh, 3% of shopping happened online. Now it's like 26%. You know, I think it was 30% in November sort of thing. Right. Total transformation in how we shop. And therefore, these, these town centres are, are, are really, you know, on the down and out. And his point was, councils now see themselves as sort of um, the leaders of the place. They, they like have a, a role around like curating what's in it. It's like if, if the town centre's on the way down, we're getting blamed for all these empty shops. We're taking all the hit. Why not use some of our capital budget to buy the thing and then reinvent it a bit? So in, in Oldham, they're putting um, the council offices, some of the council offices are going in there. So there's more footfall and, and, and a better use of it. Right, right. Other places are stripping out the bigger department stores and putting more like smaller independent units in. Mm-hmm. And I think that the piece basically makes the point that like, the, the most successful areas are ones who have a genuine strategic vision for what they're trying to achieve with their area and they step in in like a really active way. Because if they don't, the market's not going to provide anything yeah. and the town centres are going to get even worse. So God knows if it's going to work. But I thought it was an interesting little piece. Right, OK. So that sort of state intervention into your local or council intervention into your local uh, shopping centre. Yeah, and he, and he made the point that people always say, well, you always talk about how you're running out of money and you've got no money from the government. How can you do this? He made the point, look, there's the revenue budget, which is the bit we're always having to cut every year. Mm. There's the capital budget, which you only spend once and you do need to make big investments for this. You either do this or you do roads or you <laughs> spend 50 yeah, million on a, on, on, a, on a massive art centre mm. or, or whatever. Whatever, you know, so mm. so I think he made the case, um, and it'd be interesting to see how people respond. Okay, uh, we'll watch, I guess. Hey, Keisha, uh, you'll have heard her at the start of this podcast, Keisha Thompson, who is um, a fascinating woman, a really interesting character, isn't she? Uh, she is the artistic director of Contact Theatre, and you spent some time with her. She came to the mill office, yeah, she came to the mill office. We've been looking to speak to her for ages, actually. Um, just because she was an interesting appointment. Um, she was. She grew up in Wally Range. Um, she, I think she got involved in contact really young. A lot of people do. Like That's mm. their big selling point, is people get involved when they're teenagers, and they do loads of community outreach and stuff. She got involved when she was 15. Um, she was part of Contact's engagement programme. Then she was a young poet, writer, performance artist there. Then I think she left Contact, and now she's come back to run the show. Um, and I, I, I think the thing that, that I took away from the interview is that she's just someone who's just 
buzzing with ideas. Like she's not like come over to just like run contact in the way it was before. She's got she's paused commissioning. She's like had one-on-one meetings with all the staff to try and figure out what culture they want. She's really like tried to like reassure people about its future direction. She's talking about um, diversifying its revenue streams, and she's also someone who's sort of buzzing with like um, slightly weird out there ideas. Like she was kind of telling us all her ideas and like. She's, I think she she talked about wanting to get back to the sort of, I think she called it the scratch culture where like you just, you know, people feel like they can come into contact and like try out ideas and stuff. Um, so it was a really interesting interview and let's play a little clip from it now. Prior to me coming, it was a very difficult time. There was quite a big exodus from the senior management team and there was all the stress of coming out of the lockdown and, and whatever and I knew that a lot of people were like pinning their hopes on me, yeah. which I was happy to take on but also had to kind of be like, we need to manage our expectations here. Um, and was it all about the pandemic or was, was there other stuff going on in the theatre before you arrived? Yeah, I mean, because prior to the lockdown, we'd already been out of the building mm. for two years because we were working on the capital project. Yeah. So there's a lot of stress around that. It's like we've lost our audience. We're going to have to do a lot of work. Mm. This is a new building. So there's loads of anxiety of like, we've, we've not got a new audience yet. The old audience we've kind of disjointed from them. Mm. And will they come into the building and not like it? That was Keisha Thompson, Artistic Director of Contact Theatre, who you will be able to read about in the mail very soon in a brilliant interview. Well, I haven't read it yet, but it will be very, <laughs> very good. It'll be up to our usual standards, at a minimum. If you say so, you say. Um, and that's going to be by Sophie Atkinson, our culture writer. Brilliant, excellent. Okay, uh, manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to subscribe to that and get that in your inbox. A couple of quick hits then, Yoshi. Um, uh, we've obviously been, we've followed sort of over the months the, the Yusuf Maki inquest into the death of Yusuf Maki. Some news this week, a fresh inquest into his death has been granted. Yeah, so I went to the first inquest, or you know, what 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 was the inquest? Um in I, I think I felt like it was last year, but apparently it was just slightly before that. And it was in Stockport and it came to a narrative conclusion, which is basically when a coroner decides that they don't have enough evidence to come to one of the standard conclusions like um uh, lawful killing or unlawful killing or, or death by misadventure, that kind of thing. So the family of Yusuf Maki, including Jade Akum, who is who is his half-sister, they were really disappointed because they really thought that the evidence um, wasn't given enough of a hearing. Like th- th- there wasn't enough scrutiny of some of the key um, witnesses and that kind of thing. They have been really pushing legally to get another inquest and they've got their way. I got a text from Jade on that Friday morning. I knew the news was coming because Jack was about to head down to the to the civic court. And I got a text from her being like, we've won, we've got the we've got the new thing. Like she was super excited. The outcome was basically the outcome of the first inquest, it's a little bit fiddly, it was quashed by a judge, High Court judge. They've ordered a new inquest, which is going to be in front of a new coroner or um or, or a new judge. And um they they this is something they've been fighting for as i say the original inquest that's it it was in november 2021 i look into my notes now i shouldn't be doing things off memory and um i think that the the thing like one of the things that the family was unhappy about was that for example josh molnar who is who is the the kid who stabbed mackie Mm. um he was called in to give evidence i I think around 3 p.m on a friday and the family was hoping for an adjournment to the next week so there could be proper time to speak to him. And that wasn't granted. And they felt like there were not, not enough time was there. So I don't know the legal ins and outs of why the decision's been made, but I know that the family's delighted. 
they feel like there's a better chance with the second inquest of, of, of actually getting to the bottom of, of a little bit more what happened. It's not about assigning guilt with an inquest, right? It's about assigning the facts, yeah. establishing the facts. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Jade, she said, I've got hope. I think that this will help us going forward. I'm glad that we've got something to focus on now. And then I've got the rest of my life to grieve. That was her quote. Okay. As ever, we'll keep an eye on that story when that inquest begins. Um, can we talk about the student strikes as well? Yeah. Uh, this weekend, I had uh, Fraser Maguire mm-hmm. on my Times Radio show. Ooh. Interesting young chap. And he was articulating pretty well, pretty fluently. The reason that mm. students at Manchester University, the University of Manchester, are basically have been withholding their rent this month. This month. Yeah. So student activists at the University of Manchester say that more than 350 students are now withholding their rent. I have to say, I don't think they know that for sure because mm. it's like people fill in a Google Doc saying, I've withheld my rent. Like, it's not like they have any way of checking. Mm. The university disputes that number. They say it's not that many. Or, or at least they say the total amount being withdrawn is not the, the amount that the activists claim, which I think was about half a million pounds. Molly's been reporting on this one because she graduated from the university two years ago. And mm. one of her first ever mill pieces was a huge long read about the really successful rent strike two years ago so she's got a brilliant piece coming out um on the mail i think by the time you listen to this it'll probably be out because mm. we're very good at publishing things early in the morning at the moment yeah. so um, um that will be out there but it's an interesting one because what's something interested me is it, it's not being run by the student union it's being run by like a separate sort of yeah. le- leaderless activist group yeah so we'll keep an eye on that yeah um okay very interesting we, we, we talked about it in the context on the on, on my show this weekend of, of how students are Sort of just like sort of right at the sharp end of a lot of these cost of living issues, teacher strikes. You think about what they've been through the last couple of years, the way their education, their lives have been disrupted. Some of the most in- important formative bits of their lives disrupted. And also, their accommodation is shocking, apparently. Right, I, exactly. I, no, I, I didn't go to Manchester Uni, but Molly did, and she's told me about some of these blocks that, that these protesters are from. And apparently, some of the conditions that they live in are actually pretty shocking. And one guy was just like, Why am I paying a massive proportion of my mm. grant? Mm to pet for this like substandard place mm. so for what it's worth university managed to say that they've provided support etc and they've pointed nine million pounds of support but it's undeniable that, that the conditions not good not great um quick talk about wigan wigan yeah. wigan's first pie eating contest <laughs> post pandemic the delayed 2022 world pie eating championships collapsed into chaos on the eve of the contest after pickets announced they'll be block the entry entry to the venue in a bid to get female presence in the refereeing team. Now, I have to say, I don't know if this actually happened or whether they were just planning to. Right. But it's all it's absolute chaos. And what I want to also say in this report is Bricklayer Ian Gerrard, 43, from Wigan, won the last pre-pandemic World Pie Eating Championship in 2019, polishing, up, polishing off his pie in 35.4 seconds. Wow. That's wow. just a bit of context <laughs> for the story. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. Extraordinary scenes. One final detail. Okay. The cooked dimensions of the official regulation pie are a diameter of 12 centimetres. How big, how big is that? 12 centimetres. Big yeah. enough. Yeah, yeah. And a depth of 3.5 centimetres, which actually feels quite small not three point not, not very deep no that's not very deep no wide yeah which actually is arguably harder yeah i would yeah. say and to a, get into the mouth quickly correct and a pie wall angle from base to top of between zero and 15 degrees i can't imagine that anyway that's important context for the story <laughs> it is okay um and the mummy is returning uh to uh the manchester museum the revamped manchester museum that of course we've talked a lot about we've been very much uh, anticipating its reopening heard from the uh, director of the manchester museum on a, a podcast Recently, fascinating woman, fascinating interview, really worth listening back to. But uh, we've got a bit of context about what that's going to look like. Yeah, on the way over here, 
I got my big issue north. I opened it up and I didn't even need to open it up because the front cover is this amazing picture of a mummy. And inside there's a really good piece by Campbell Price, who's one of the curators at the museum. He gets out there in the media quite a lot. He's a really good, really good talker. Yeah. He is one of the experts with the mummies. He also does a lot of uh, other Egyptian stuff and other stuff. And he's talking about why, basically why the Manchester Museum, museum of Manchester, which is just reopening um, after this huge revamp, why they've kind of got so many mummies in there, what the background is. I'm just going to read you a bit from the piece. It says, since the first acquisition and almost immediate unwrapping of the mummified body of an, eight, body of an ancient Egyptian woman named Azru by the Manchester Natural Historical Society in 1825, mummies have been a draw for visitors in the city. Like, and then they've got this huge collection. They talk about like the colonial roots of it. And they say that the new way they're displaying it isn't just about the mummies. It's like, how, how did the mummies end up here? Obviously, right. like problematic you know, yep. ways in which they ended up here. Indeed. So I really recommend that... Um, that story in Big Issue North. Big Issue North is generally a really good read. Very much Really, so. really interesting. Very much and, they, so. and this was well worth a read about, like, how the excavations in, in the 1850, uh, in, in the 19th century, actually, I don't know when, the, the excavations in the late 19th century, the colonial system that brought about those excavations, who the people involved were, two-page thing by Campbell Price. Highly recommend. Very good stuff. Um, okay, uh, that's almost it for us for this week on this episode of the Manchester Weekly. We're going to give you a couple of bits and bobs to do around Greater Manchester in a moment. Firstly, speaking of council leaders and the, the movers and shakers, the powerful of Greater Manchester, uh, you've got an interview with Paul Dennett, Salford's mayor, soon. Are you referring to the Radio 4 line about how the, the, the movers and the shakers... Movers, the influential. The movers and shakers of Manchester listen to the mill or something. That was described as influential. Maybe we influen- can just run a clip of that. The influential mill. Yeah, why not? Well, let's run a clip. But although it's small, it's influential. It includes the likes of council leaders and chief executives, and it means the Mancunian movers and shakers pay attention to the mill. Very nice. Nice, right. Very, very nice. Okay. Okay, right, let, on to the movers and shakers. Yeah. Um, Paul Dennett, mm-hmm. who's uh, elected as mayor of Salford, a sort of um, real rising star of, of, of Labour in the north, considered one of the strong candidates to be the next mayor of Greater Manchester after after Andy Burnham. I went and met him with, with, with Jack Delhanty, who is from Salford, so I had, uh, we, had some, we had some local backup in the yeah. interview, <laughs> not just a posh southerner. Yeah. And um, we had a really, really interesting chat. And I'm, when I get back from the studio, I'm going to start writing it up, and it's going to be on the mill, <laughs> hopefully, this weekend. Brilliant. OK, we'll look forward to that. ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you go to subscribe to get Paul Dennett in your inbox. And a couple of bits and bobs around uh, Greater Manchester. Yoshi, it's coming in the next couple of days. What are you looking at? So the thing I'm looking at is um, the Holocaust exhibition at the Imperial War Museum, which is in just it's just over the, mm, over the docks. Yes, it is. It's very close to us, isn't it? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, throwing distance from where we're recording this. Yeah. Over 60 contemporary portraits of Holocaust survivors and their families um, shining a light on the full lives they've lived and our collective responsibility to cherish their stories. This is right up my street because, as you know, I've got a lot of family links to the Holocaust. Um, uh, the, the exhibition talks about um, powerful photographs that capture the special connections between the survivors and younger generations. I've seen a few of these pictures. They're really cool. They're like, you know, survivors who are obviously really, really old now. I mean, it'll, there'll come a time, presumably in... I don't know, five or ten years' time, where there won't be any mm. Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. So uh, pretty, pretty, get, they're getting on in age, and then um, with their family. So I saw one with like, a, a, you know, I think it's a grandson and Holocaust survivor together. So mm. really nice exhibition. Opens tomorrow if you're listening to this when it comes out, which is um, Friday, Holocaust Memorial Day, and it's open until the summer. Mm. Just there, obviously a lot of a lot of those stories have been 
heard and and documented but when you put it like that suddenly just suddenly i just had a bit of a, a flutter like suddenly there's an urgency isn't there to get those stories and to hear from those people and to document them um okay uh, that, that really worth checking out clearly uh, my recommendation for the week ahead is at the contact theater on brand very on brand uh 50 hours of focus is running at the contact theater next week basically this is for you if you're into the creative arts, really, and creativity. Uh, there's a week of talks and workshops and masterclasses exploring the art industry's most burning issues. Um, it says here that you can arm yourself for 2023 and beyond with wisdom and skills from artists. They've got some really decent names all on this lineup for uh, over the course of a couple of days at Contact Theatre. And the final recommendation that we're going to do is yes. from our sponsors, The Lit and Phil. Why Good would, idea. Why wouldn't we? Good idea. So they've got some amazing talks coming up on um, the 9th of February. They've got one called Will Humans Become Extinct Through Climate Change by Dr. Anders um, Sandberg, um, talking about the, the he, he's from the future, uh, the future of Humanity Institute, examining the role that climate change may, may play in the end of the world. So it's not this weekend, but it's coming up. And given that they've sponsored us, thank you very much to the Lit and Phil. And you should get yourself down to that talk and take advantage of those offers that are in the show notes. Just go and click the link, get your discount. Brilliant. And we'll see you at Will Humans Becoming Extinct Through Climate Change. Good stuff. Looking forward to it. Um, thank you for being with us on this week's episode. Thank you if you are new as well and you made it all the way through. We appreciate that. Uh, we appreciate your support and your help in us continuing to grow. You can help us further by commenting and liking and subscribing to this podcast. Yeah. You'll get it in your podcast feed every Thursday as well as signing up to The Mill as ever. Manchestermill.co.uk. For now though, Yoshi, thank you. Thank you. See you next week. <laughs>